The WGN-TV property is selling for nearly $31 million. The buyer, a big Houston real estate investment firm, dropping nearly $100 million on a business campus next door to the Chicago TV station. And Crane's commercial real estate reporters Danny Ecker and Albie Galoon join me for a roundtable discussion about the commercial real estate outlook in the Loop, Fulton Market, and the suburbs. And we'll talk about tax assessor Fritz Kagey. Fritz Kagey, the assessor, has really disrupted the market in a in a big way since he was elected in 2018. If my tax bill doubles, which it could, or triples in some cases, I mean, I, I can't afford that, especially for small businesses that are trying to work their way out of a hole from the pandemic. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, November 22nd. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. All right, I am joined by Team Commercial Real Estate. That is Albie Galoon and Danny Ecker, both of you covering that beat for Cranes. And there's a lot to talk about here, so let's just dive right in. Let's start with a kind of a snapshot of downtown right now. So Danny, you've recently written about some building owners who've been in some pretty tough spots. Of course, there's still a lot up in the air around hotels and offices, certainly. And then Albie, you've been really closely watching retail downtown, particularly the Mag Mile. Uh, you and I have talked before about like new thinking about what kind of tenants might go in beyond retailers. So I, I guess I'll just throw this to both of you, kind of what's happening downtown recently, maybe in the, just the last month or so. What's the latest? It's been a slow... <laughs> A slow recovery, I would say that's kind of the way to overall describe downtown. I mean, I feel like you're seeing more activity of, you know, more more people downtown, but still at a much lower number than pre-pandemic times. And when it comes to kind of real estate, I think it's it just sort of depends on the type of property you're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of different storylines happening out there and even within each property type, different uh, storylines based on the neighborhood you're looking at. So overall, I, I would just say, though, it's it's just been a pretty slow comeback. I feel like the arrow is pointing up, but only slightly for downtown Chicago. Yeah. What about office buildings? It's funny because there's so many office buildings that they weren't immediately affected uh, in a significant way by the pandemic because a lot of these office buildings are tied to long-term leases. So you know, as people would describe it, it could be this like lagging indicator where the fallout for office buildings comes maybe in, you know, sort of a slow burn for the next several years. But for office buildings that had a lot of vacant space or maybe had a, a loan, owners that had a loan that was coming due um, or maybe were struggling to make a loan payment, we're now starting to see actually a few more cases in the last couple of months of some distress pop up. We had the Civic Opera building, which was the owners were hit with a $195 million foreclosure lawsuit. And we've uh, just seen in the last couple months, a couple um, uh, downtown office buildings, older office buildings that had a lot of vacant space uh, where the owners 
just basically handed the keys back to their lenders saying, this isn't worth fighting over. That that might be an indication of what could be coming. But while that's happening, you also have a lot of leasing happening in the Fulton Market District where there's a lot of you know new buildings that uh, and a lot of activity that's been really attractive areas that where companies can say, hey, this is a place where our employees are going to want to be here as opposed to working from home. And, you know, you have some really high quality office buildings downtown and new skyscrapers that are still doing well among tenants that are willing to sign leases. So there's a a lot of different situations throughout uh, downtown in in terms of the office market. And it's just going to be another interesting year in 2022 when we see kind of how the the fallout from this occurs and and really kind of who the, the winners are. I like the idea of, you described them as storylines, all the different storylines going downtown. Albie, what about you? What are you following most closely downtown? Well, yeah, I would just say that kind of the, the white knuckled moment is is past. You know, I think last year it seemed like the sky was falling and there was just a lot of fear in the market and, you know, it looks better now. But as Danny pointed out, like there's still a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what the future is going to look like when it comes to the office market with remote work and hybrid work. And that's just a big question mark for the office market. But it is kind of a case by case basis. If you look at apartments, you know, the apartment market is as strong as it's ever been. I mean, the rents are at record highs. The occupancy rate is high. Developers are building again. There are all sorts of cranes going up in the Fulton Market District, which, you know, Danny mentioned, that's really kind of a hotbed of apartment development. So if you're focused on that, things are really good. Interestingly, that is the most active part of the market for development, and it has been for a long time. And I would expect that to continue. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of apartments going up over the next two, three, four years. What about the suburban market? I know you both have been keeping an eye on that, but Albie, especially, I feel like Amazon and warehouse space, all of that has kept you certainly, certainly busy. What's the latest there? Yeah, that's another bright spot. I was actually just talking to a broker today. He's been in the uh, industrial brokerage business for 27 years. And he said, I've never seen it like this before. He said that, you know, rents are soaring rents in the O'Hare market, which is a, a strong industrial market are up. 10% 10% so far this year, which is huge. And, you know, there's a lot of construction going on and it's it's all driven by, you know, Amazon is a big part of that story. We've talked about it, but, you know, there are other companies that are expanding too. A lot of companies are kind of retooling their supply chains and you also have manufacturers expanding too. Uh, you know, that is definitely a bright spot. And what's interesting about it is the industrial market, the warehouse market, it's never really been, um, as, as, as this broker said, it's kind of been the redheaded stepchild for a long time. And, you know, now it's, um, you know, the bell of the ball. It, it is where investors want to be. And so uh, it probably is the hottest uh, sector in real estate right now. Danny, what about suburban office spaces? What are you seeing there? Well, I guess to piggyback on what Albie was just mentioning, you know, one big, big deal we just saw recently or a deal that could be happening is the Allstate campus in Northbrook, where you have uh, this, you know, longtime office campus uh, in a really well-located area uh, and a company saying we're going to embrace remote work. And so 
uh, we're going to sell our campus and who's coming in to buy it but a big industrial developer that presumably, we don't know the details yet, but would want to redevelop a, a really large site along the highway there with warehouses. You know, it, it's a very densely populated area. And that's something that I think, you know, I don't know if, if you could have turn the clock back, probably not too far to pre-pandemic times, really, just and say, well, you know, who would have called that, you know, that this major corporate campus might be turned into warehouses. I, that's an interesting, I think, a good indicator of kind of what's happening in, in the office market overall, but especially in the suburbs where there's, you know, obviously a lot of these large corporate campuses that some of, of which have been abandoned over the past decade, but now some more might be. I always go to sports analogies uh, because that's just my nature. But I, I keep making this comparison to like, it's like there's this, you know, football stadium, right? And you have people who are sitting in the nosebleeds or have, you know, the, the, the really high up seats and they are now looking down and seeing, hey, there's a bunch of really good seats opening up down low. People are leaving and for no charge, I can almost no charge. I can just move up and really improve my seats. But on the other hand, I also might just go home and watch the game on my TV because it's actually more convenient. That's kind of what's happening in the office market. You have a lot of really nice buildings that are getting the tenants and the older buildings are not, you know, so there, there's going to be this need for what happens to those older buildings or do they get redeveloped into uh, other uses or just, you know, demolished. Uh, but, but there's a lot of people talk about the vacancy rate among, among offices in the suburbs. It's at a record high and, and there are a lot of good options out there if you're a company looking for office space. But at the same time, there's also, uh, at least what, what landlords would tell you, is there's a lot of supply that's just too old and you know it, it wouldn't make sense for anyone to come and turn it into new cool office space because you know there's just not enough demand for offices, uh, at least right now. So you know there's interesting deals getting done. We just saw the first tenant sign on for the former McDonald's uh, headquarters campus out in Oak Brook, which is, you know, just an interesting case. It's a lot of open space and land and outdoor space, things that you would think companies might really like coming out of the pandemic. But at the same time, we also have this narrative that, you know, the pandemic and this millennial migration that we saw, especially last year to move to the suburbs was going to ultimately lift the demand for suburban office space. There will be more millennials living in the suburbs that want to work in the suburbs. You know, that's the theory. That really hasn't panned out, you know, at least not yet. Uh, we, we obviously, it's probably too soon to conclude that, but, you know, it, it's so far has not translated to some sort of, um, you know, companies that were looking downtown or had downtown offices that are now turning their attention to the suburbs. We just haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and then, Let's shift to Fritz Kagi, because Danny, you wrote about how small business owners are kind of bracing for new assessments and tax bills. And then Albie, you wrote about a study that gives Kagi pretty high marks, higher marks than Joe Berrios, his predecessor. So both things can be true, both things are accurate, but nonetheless, I feel like the narrative around like around property taxes is so complicated anyway. I feel like the public narrative could be a bit of like a little bit of a murky kind of tug of war, especially among voters. So let's talk about that. Where should we start even talking about Kagi? Well, it's it's a big, hairy subject. But Fritz Kagi, the assessor, has really disrupted the market in, in, a, in a big way since he was elected in 2018. 
and he was elected as a reformer. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of scrutiny of Joe Berrios, his predecessor, and criticism of Berrios that he was underassessing big commercial properties. And so as a result of that, that meant that homeowners were responsible for a bigger share of the property tax burden. And, you know, Kagi's point was, Berrios just is his assessments are not accurate and they're too low. So he's in his third year. Uh, he started in the suburbs and now this year uh, he reassessed uh, the city and recently finished up downtown. And, you know, he's he's done what he said he was going to do. He has hiked assessments on big properties and Landlords aren't very happy about it. And there are a lot of people who feel like he's picking on them. And so there are questions, you know, Danny has written about what does this mean for the businesses who occupy these buildings who ultimately have to pay property taxes? Small businesses who rent space in buildings will have to shoulder the burden. So there are real consequences to this. But if you look at the data, that we have so far in the, you know, we don't have a complete picture of what's going on, but, you know, we've studied this and there was a report out this week that Kagi released that, that suggests that actually he's closer to the mark than Berrios was in terms of putting a value on commercial properties. The report that you mentioned was released by the um, International Association of Assessing Officers, and they basically said, what Kagi is doing is a big improvement over what Berrios was doing. The problem is that, you know, there's this other impact that, that Danny has written about. Maybe I'll kick it over to you, Danny, and you can talk about that. Part of this is that, like, for, for businesses that are looking at these and then uh, waiting to see what the impact is on their property tax bills, they're just, it's such, it's such a huge and sudden impact as opposed to, well, we know that over the next five years, we're going to budget for taxes going up. It's like, you know, they don't even know what the, the, the fallout exactly is going to be. But, um, you know, for all the reasons Albie just mentioned, I mean, it's, it's very likely that some of these, uh, uh, many, many office users are just going to get be handed new tax bills next year from their landlord saying, here's what you owe. And, you know, for a lot of companies, it's bigger corporations downtown. It's some of these things might not make that much of a difference. But what I wrote about last week was, you know, had more to do with the small businesses that it's a more of a needle mover, so to speak, for, for these businesses that might say, okay, well, here, here's another sixty, seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 suddenly that you have to pay each year. For, for a, a company that's, you know, has 10 employees, 20 employees, uh, that's a significant expense. I, what I wrote about actually had a lot more to do with uh, was one area in the city in particular, which is west of the Fulton Market District, where there's a lot of buildings that kind of look a lot like, you know, buildings that have been turned into really trendy and pricey uh, office buildings in Fulton Market, but there, where there's more liberal zoning uh, opportunities there. Um but some of these buildings uh, in the Kinsey Industrial Corridor west of there, which have a lot of these sort of light, light manufacturing small businesses, 
they're also looking at huge, huge increases in the, the assessed value of their properties and trying to figure out, wait a minute, I, I can't afford, you know, if my tax bill doubles, which it could, or triples in some cases, I mean, I, I can't afford that, especially if for small businesses that are trying to work their way out of a hole from the pandemic. Uh, so, so as Albie said, there, there are consequences of, of what Fritz Kage is doing, whether or not it's the proper approach is, is its own, you know, uh, is a separate question, but it certainly is at least for the first three years of, of assessments here that he's done, um, having an impact, uh, on, on companies. Now it, it also should be said, you know, and I talk about a lot about small businesses, but you know, people like to say, well, this is, at least in the office market, this is a real, you know, this is really threatening what has been a big selling point for Chicago for so long, which is we're actually a very affordable city for, for companies in terms of the real estate costs and labor costs, of course, you know, these big costs for companies. And so people are saying, well, what, what are we doing? We're really, we're, we're kind of cannibalizing that if we raise taxes so much. Well, with that said, you also have quite recently some big new companies that are signing leases to move into the city for all the reasons that they were before. You know, Milwaukee Tool just signed a big lease at the old post office uh, because they want access to engineering talent here. And so the same with uh, Deere, John Deere. Uh, they just uh, signed a lease in Fold Market. Uh, same same idea. I mean, the, the talent here is such a big draw for the city. And so you kind of weigh that, I guess, against this tax environment we have that people say is so onerous and certainly maybe getting more so for, for, uh, for companies, but, uh, there's just a kind of interesting push and pull there that kind of determines the fate of how companies feel about Chicago. And I do worry like going into election time, how that narrative around both is going to possibly be very murky and very confusing for, for voters. I mean, on one hand to right side, a system that's been inaccurately done is a noble thing to do. It's the right thing to do, but then it's also true that it could really be impactful and significant to small businesses. I mean, that's concerning because it seems like that's definitely going to be a lot of push-pull. I don't know that the assessor's race gets really all that much attention historically, but I, I think it definitely will Yeah. This, the next time around. Yeah, we'll have to get AD and Greg in the room to get, <laughs> to get all on the, the voter side, the voter mind. Danny raises an interesting point because he's talking about it from businesses relocating here. But, you know, he and I both here, we talk to brokers and we talk to investors and developers all the time. And the narrative you hear from a lot of them is, well, well, you know, everybody, everyone's leaving the city. Like developers that develop in Chicago now are going to Texas or Florida or Arizona. They're not building anything here. Now, why is that? because they're worried about property taxes. Um, but it's, it's really hard to, to know whether that's really true because there's still plenty of money flowing into Chicago and people are still paying up for properties here. So it's, um, it's a little bit of a wash, but um, you know, it's something that we're keeping our eye on. Obviously Chicago still has, you know, great assets in terms of, um, our workforce and um, you know cultural institutions and and every it's a very dynamic place. So there are other reasons aside from just taxes that businesses and investors decide to be here. Yeah, yeah, it'll be something to watch for sure. All right, well, it is now time to turn our attention to three stories 
that caught your attention that are not on the commercial real estate beat? Who would like to start? I'll jump in. I uh, always, you know, it always, mine always have to do with sports. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a story about the Staples Center having a, a new naming rights partner with Crypto.com. You know, it's probably one of the best known uh, sports venues in the country, uh, maybe if not the world. And uh, getting a, a new name is a pretty big deal. So reportedly, this deal is worth $700 million over 20 years, which would make it, I believe, the richest sports naming rights deal ever. Um, and I, I was, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest in that, but I just keep thinking back when I see these things to the Bears. Because I think about, you know, this ongoing effort and what may come with Arlington Heights and, you know, it just kind of underscores how much money and not to say that the Bears would be able to command, what is that, I think, like somewhere like $35 million a year for Crypto.com for, for a naming rights partner for a new stadium. But, you know, 10 to $15 million is very, very reasonable, maybe 20, you know, from from some other experts in the industry. And you think about just how much money the bears miss out on each year without certain opportunities like that. And I don't know, that just kind of uh, hit home for me. I, I also thought John Pletz's story about Eric Lefkowski and the Tempest IPO and kind of this idea of, you know, post Groupon redemption for Eric Lefkowski, I, I think was interesting, mostly because I just, it kind of maybe relive a lot of the experience of watching Groupon's rise and then it become this, total, you know, the, the stock, Groupon stock, which is trading at 93% below its IPO price now. I, I, I mean, it was amazing to think about how at the time when we were covering it at Cranes and how this amazing, you know, meteoric rise of Groupon was happening. And Eric Lefkowski at the time was saying, this is going to be wildly profitable. And now you're hearing as, as John wrote, you know, he, he's taken a much more measured tone, you know, hoping that this one does a little bit better in terms of its performance. So anyway, I just thought it was a really interesting angle to, to that thing. And then the other one that caught my eye was a story that Block Club Chicago had about dogs and bars uh, and uh, that there's an ordinance that uh, made it through city council with, you know, basically allowing, you know, dogs to be, you know, at, at bars that there were there were bar owners that were complaining because they were getting tickets for you know, saying, oh, there's these dogs are uh, are on the same premises where there are cocktail garnishes. And that was against the rules. And I think they've kind of just cleaned up the rules a little bit here to allow this. And you think about so many patios and things like that, that have people, you know, will sit there and drink and eat and have, have their dogs sit with them. And I just thought it was a great, great news for dogs. And I'm all, I'm, I'm always for that. <laughs> dogs are now legal to, to be in the bar. They can do it. <laughs> you know, they say dogs' mouths are cleaner than people's mouths. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, I like the sound of it. Yeah, folk wisdom says, yeah, indeed. Albie, what about you? What stories caught your eye? I'm going to continue on the critter beat here. Yes. And uh, I just love the story about the big head carp that was caught in the Humboldt Park Lagoon. I probably remember two years ago when they caught Chance the Snapper in the Humboldt Park Lagoon. A few weeks ago, this guy was fishing in the lagoon, and he caught a 72-pound big head carp. Chance was 50 pounds. This this fish was 72 pounds. Now, Chance is still alive in a um, in an alligator sanctuary down in Florida. This uh, this carp is no longer alive, unfortunately. But 
it uh, is possibly a state record for an Asian big head carp. So I just, I love the story. And there was an awesome picture that I saw in Black Club of the guy who caught it, pushing it in a shopping cart across North Avenue. So, well, so my second one was a story from a little while back about this Swiss private equity firm. This was in the Wall Street Journal that banned the word deal in any of its conversations. Yes. And that's what these guys do is they're a deal shop. They have $119 billion in assets or something like that. And the CEO decided that he didn't like the word deal. So, you know, anybody who uses it gets fined $1,000 and it goes to some charity or something. And then didn't he have like a lower price point for more junior workers? I feel like he had like a, a starter offender fee or something. Yeah. I mean, that's like banning the word scoop in a newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Or deadline or something. Right. Right. Yeah. right. So, but, you know, I, and I. You know, we use the word deal all the time when we're writing stories. So um, and it's not going to stop me from doing that. We should do a word count in both of your stories and just see if you were part of that company, how much you would have had to pay in. I feel like both of you say deal in your story. You have to because it's you're writing about deals. It would be ugly. It's really hard because there are only so many synonyms out there for sales or transactions. Agreement. Or, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's all I got for you. Okay, well, so on my list, I also had the Staples Center becoming Crypto.com because I think it's so fascinating. I feel like every big visible layer surrounding cryptocurrency, all these people immediately kind of like the armchair economist pundits start go like, this is really legitimizing cryptocurrency. Like it keeps, keeps kind of ongoing. And this one suddenly like got a lot of people talking on social media. I found a story in uh, Politico about the environmental costs and trade-offs of the e-commerce boom that was really fascinating. It was kind of trading that, okay, fewer people are going out to eat, but more people are cooking at home. And therefore, like, this is what how trash changed and what waste is. It's really, really interesting of just getting, getting goods to people and disposing of goods. A lot of trucks shipping those goods. Yeah, it's a lot of trucks, right. And so it's fewer people were going to stores, but more trucks were bringing goods to them. Uh, and then, uh, of course, it was widely reported, but I saw, in the, saw it in the New York Times first. There were these heavy storms in Egypt, and it drove these scorpions called the Death Stalker out in droves. And even the New York Times used the words plagues of scorpions, which sounds really horrifying, but it's they stung hundreds of people. These just like, I don't know, it's a gaggle, a swarm, a murder of scorpions came into and like started stinging people. And that sounds extremely horrifying. I tweeted it with nope, 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 attached to it. So that sounds like part of the Passover Seder. Is what I know. <laughs> I know. Totally. It's absolutely <laughs> a, where maybe it gets added this year. The scorpions. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, well, thank you both. Always a pleasure to chat. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, CVS is set to close 900 stores in a big retail strategy shift. The Walgreens rival isn't leaving traditional pharmacies behind, even though there will be fewer. But the company is expanding the retail clinic presence currently led by its Minute Clinics. We'll talk about that and more right after this. 
Is your student taking the SAT, ACT, or a high school admissions test this year? Academic Approach wants to help them get prepared. Academic Approach's time-tested tutoring programs ensure students grow their academic skills, improving their performance on standardized tests. The work together begins with a consultation with an Academic Approach director who will meet with you and your student to discuss their unique needs. Then Academic Approach creates an effective, fully customized study plan that targets their goals and matches them with a tutor who will be by their side, guiding them through instruction and practice throughout their tutoring journey. Get in touch today to learn how Academic Approach can help your student transform into a confident, successful test taker. Learn more at academicapproach.com slash daily gist. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. A big Houston developer that's dropping nearly $100 million on a business campus in North Center has also snapped up WGN-TV's studio at 2501 West Bradley Place. An affiliate of Heinz has agreed to pay about $30.5 million for the TV station, according to an SEC filing by the company. Though Heinz is best known for building downtown high-rises, after all it is part of a joint venture developing the 60-story Salesforce Tower on Wolf Point, North Center has recently caught the eye of a real estate investment trust formed by the company. The REIT, Heinz Global Income Trust, is in the process of acquiring the Bradley Business Center, a four-building, 467,000-square-foot office and industrial campus just north of WGN for just over $97 million, according to the filing. Heinz Global is buying the WGN property from R2, a Chicago developer that picked up the site in 2017 for over $22 million. It should also be noted, of course, that WGN-TV isn't going anywhere for now, as its lease doesn't expire for more than five years. State regulators granted NICOR Gas a record $240 million rate hike, turning up the heat, if you'll pardon the pun, on what's already shaping up to be the costliest heating season in over a decade. The increase, approved by the Illinois Commerce Commission, is the third for NICOR in four years and the highest ever for an Illinois gas utility. Revenue for delivering gas to suburban homes and businesses served by the utility now has increased more than $500 million since 2018, accounting to a total of a 77% increase over that time, according to ICC filings. Crane's Steve Daniels reports that the increases are due to unprecedented capital spending to upgrade NICOR's suburban pipe network. As it stands, without this rate hike, those households that NICOR serves can expect to pay 48% more to heat their homes this winter than last winter, just thanks to the increase in natural gas prices. But this is going to exacerbate that. And it is also raising alarm bells that already were ringing among consumer advocates about uh, what they term out-of-control natural gas costs and heating costs, thanks to rate hikes that were made possible by legislation passed almost a decade ago in the state that gave the green light to utilities like NICOR Gas to spend unprecedented amounts on capital projects and upgrading their pipes. So far, those calls have fallen on deaf ears in Springfield, but there are signs of increased stress, especially among lower-income households in paying their heating bills, so that could change if things get worse. Agricultural products giant Chicago-based Archer Daniels Midland is among those putting $300 million behind Farmers Business Network, a company bringing e-commerce to farming. 
Crane's John Pletz reports that the company, which recently set up shop in Fulton Market, built a software platform for farmers that allows them to compare prices on seed, chemicals, feed, and other products, as well as purchase them. They'll soon be able to sell their grain and other products to ADM and others. Farmers Business Network also provides marketing services, insurance, and lending products to farmers. ADM wants to use the network, which has data on its 33,000 farm customers, to track sustainability, that according to co-founder Charles Barron. If ADM buys grain from a farmer on FBN, it'll be able to calculate carbon offset scores that have become important to both customers and investors. FBN, which is based in Silicon Valley and was co-founded by University of Illinois engineering graduate Amal Deshpande, is valued at $3.9 billion. The company has raised more than $800 million from investors that include BlackRock, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, Kleiner Perkins, Google's venture capital arm, and others. FBN has about 60 workers in Chicago and more than 800 overall, most of whom are scattered around the country at 25 warehouses or they're selling to and supporting farmers. The company said they'll use the funding to hire more workers in Chicago and beyond. CVS Health announced that over the next three years, the pharmacy giant plans to close 900 pharmacies and step up its efforts to reimagine its retail locations as sites for more healthcare services. The company, which also operates Aetna Health Insurance and CVS Caremark Pharmacy Benefit Management subsidiaries, announced a related senior executive leadership shakeup. Crane's sister publication Modern Healthcare reports that CVS Health isn't leaving traditional pharmacies behind, even though there will be fewer. But the company is expanding the retail clinic presence currently led by its Minute Clinics. CVS Health said it envisions more sites where customers can access health and wellness services, both in person and virtually. The company reported to the SEC that the store closures will result in $1 to $1.2 billion in impairment charges. That's Crane's Daily Just for Now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of today's guests, Crane's reporters Danny Ecker and Albie Galoon. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. You'll also find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. I'm A.D. Quigg, host of Crane's new podcast, A.D. Q&A. On this week's show, I speak with Northwestern professor Jaime Dominguez about rising Latino power in light of new legislative maps. You can find it at chicagobusiness.com by clicking on podcasts. Latino issues are, are city issues, right? So uh, wanting a better education for your child is not a Latino issue. It's a, it's a city issue. I think every parent wants that, right? Having more representation in the workforce, I think, is great for the city. And so if the growth of your city, there's a population growth of a particular group that eventually is going to become the majority, right? Then I think it's important that that group gets integrated.